was showtime. Down to the final three teams. It was us in Grand Rapids versus Lansing and Kalamazoo facing off for the Worldwide Church of God Michigan State Bible Bowl Championship. The questions came fast and furious, but I was ready. For 20 points, what was the name of Adam's third son? I buzzed in. Glenn Washington, Grand Rapids team. Seth. Correct. For 40 points, how old is the planet Earth? Grand Rapids team, 5,984 years. Correct. For 50 points, name all the books of the Old Testament in order. Please. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Song, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Team Grand Rapids wins! Grand Rapids, Michigan is the new Bible Bowl champion! Various brethren that came up to me all congratulatory after the big show. Amazing, fantastic. You must have studied hard for this Bible Bowl. And that's what I didn't know. I wasn't studying for no Bible Bowl, please. I had bigger fish to fry. The head of our church, the Lord's one true apostle, Herbert W. Armstrong, routinely quoted from the book of Revelations, the last book of the Bible where it mentioned two witnesses shall preach into all the world before the end of days. Two people will spread the word and usher in final Armageddon. It was obvious from Bible study that one of these witnesses prophesied would of course be Herbert W. Armstrong. But what was not so obvious was who that second witness would be to usher in the final Armageddon. Armstrong was old, old, 87 years old, and wheezy and pasty and prone to strange rants. So it only made sense that the other witness be young, maybe brown, and able to decimate the field at Bible Bowl. The end of days was nigh. And yes, I wanted to be ready just in case. Right after the competition, Pop said we had to go to Deacon Wilson's house, our local biblical scholar, for big news. We arrived, and the folding chairs were already arranged. Mostly the usual cast of characters, people we'd just seen at the Bible Bowl. But Deacon Wilson sat in front, looking solemn. When we sat down, he stood up and cleared his throat. <clears throat> Brethren, tonight... I will unveil a startling biblical revelation unknown until now. And then Mr. Wilson started scribbling on the chalkboard behind him. We know, brethren, that according to scripture, Adam lived to be 930 years old and his son Methuselah lived 969 years. When you add this to the sign of completion and carry the four, you can subtract the number of towers in the temple of David. And there, start counting forward to the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And from here, it's a simple matter of following the celestial calendar, as opposed to the Roman calendar, and it all becomes very plain. Brethren, the apocalypse begins October 23rd, 1986. That is two years, four months, seven days, Mr. Wilson checked his watch, and ten hours away there were gasps from the assembled. The deacon's wife seemed about to faint. Everybody looked at everybody else. And then Miss Nancy raised her hand. I thought we had more time. This is so sudden. What should we wear? And who's going to take us to safety? And who is going to be the second witness? Right, said this man next to me. Who's going to be the second witness? It was time, it was time, it was finally time. I was ready to be revealed as the second witness. I started to stand up and accept my appointment and the deacon said, we don't know who the second witness will be. 
but we do know this is the end of days. There's no hope for planet Earth. Brethren, the apocalypse is nigh. Well, I waited. And I waited. And October 23rd, 1986 came and went. But just in case that witness position is still open, I want everyone to know that I'm still ready. Today, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present a very special Snap Judgment episode. We're calling it Apocalypse. Amazing stories about the end of days, the final catastrophe. My name is Glenn Washington. Repent now. Tell your loved ones everything you have to say or forever hold your tongue because you're listening to Snap Judgment. Come on. Some people, they witness the apocalypse over and over again. It's their job to run toward, not away, but toward natural disasters. Those moments when nature fights back to let us know who's really in charge. Our next story does deal with witness to disaster, and sensitive listeners should be advised. When I was a kid, I used to sit in this brown armchair in my living room in Southern California, hunched over an oversized Time Life book about history's great disasters. I think the sinking of the Titanic was in there, and there were famous volcanoes. But the one that I remember the best was a tidal wave. And the picture showed people running from this towering, curling maw of a wave. And I really wondered what it was that a wave like that could do. Now, I work for Time Magazine in Asia. In March 2011, we had the unfortunate opportunity to see what a wave like that could do. It was an apocalypse. By the time I got to Japan, there were thousands of people buried in the rubble. It was still winter, and the lights of the emergency vehicles coming and going were flickering over the heaps of cinder blocks and mud. And I was filming Japanese soldiers carrying corpses out of the rubble and then really carefully lining them up along the side of the road. Most of the bodies were naked, and they, they had sort of covered them all in these wet blankets. For a split second, a quilt kind of fell off a woman's nude body and exposed her breast. And this young soldier looked at me really sharply over his shoulder just to be like, don't do it. And I didn't. I lowered my camera to the mud. And later I have this footage of my like muddy shoes. This wasn't my first tsunami. And these were not the first bodies that I'd found. The first time that I went looking for a body was seven years earlier on the east coast of Sri Lanka, about three weeks after the Asian tsunami had hit the day after Christmas. And again, I was there to shoot a video and a couple of people had told me and my friend there was this unidentified body that was still on the beach. So we thought we should get the footage and we went. It's a weird thing to do, looking for a corpse that doesn't really belong to you. I was really dreading seeing this body. Nine months before that, my dad had died pretty suddenly. And so instead of facing my own family, I ended up stalking the remains of somebody else's. I guess this is what journalists do. After my dad died, my mom and my brother and I really had no idea how to handle his remains. The three of us drove to a crematorium and we had to sign these like waivers to watch him be cremated instead of buried. And I asked the woman in the office what this was about. And she really condescendingly explained that people can be traumatized by watching their relatives go into the incinerator and they weren't liable for, you know, any damage we decided to do to ourselves by, like, witnessing this event. The thing is, is nobody in the United States ever wants to see this happen. 
I really didn't know what to expect, but um, this was not what I was expecting. It was basically like this sort of cement building and somebody had set out this little thing of astroturf and then put like three metal folding chairs for me and my brother and my mom to sit in and watch. And then my dad was there and he was in a cardboard box and his name was written on it in this like black marker. My mom wrapped her arms around both of us and we sort of watched this cardboard box like slide into a hole in the wall and watched my father actually go into the incinerator. So on that beach in Sri Lanka, I eventually got up the courage to poke my head around that thicket to see the corpse. It was kind of a relief. Somebody had cremated the body there on the sand. There was really nothing left but small white skull and some ribs sticking out of the sand. I have no idea if anybody ever claimed them or if the family of the woman underneath that quilt in Japan ever found her. I mean, I really hope they did. I went back to the cemetery in Japan a year after the tsunami, and I met this middle-aged truck driver who was praying at his own parents' graves that were empty. He had actually never found their bodies, even after a whole year of looking. And he said, I know they're dead, I know they're dead. But without seeing their bodies, he really just couldn't accept it. I really don't know how to move on. He said, I don't know how to move on. I know I am lucky to have been able to lay my father to rest, even if it was in a cardboard box on AstroTurf, because, you know, his remains did not sit gathering salt on a beach or at the bottom of the ocean. I got to watch him go. Thank you, Krista Marr, for sharing your story with us. Krista is currently the South Asia Bureau Chief for Time Magazine. We'll have links to her work on snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Anna Sussman. When Snap Judgment continues, we're going to a house of ill repute... We're going to a very strange summer camp, and we're going to bring you an escape, the likes of which you've never heard before. For real, when Snap Judgment, the apocalypse episode, continues. Snap Judgment, the apocalypse episode. Now, when we contemplate the end of the world, at least when I do, I think in terms of global calamity. But when you're witness to the destruction of your own community, it feels like the apocalypse, at least to the people living it. Gypsy Yo takes us to a corner of the world where most people, they would just as soon forget. Sensitive listeners and parents of young children be advised. This next story is fearless. Mm-hmm. 
1997, on the day of my 17th birthday, 100,000 Albanians broke into military depots, robbed over 500,000 guns, and turned them against their own government. What followed was a year of fear, chaos, and anarchy. To survive the madness, I chose to become a poet rather than the next victim. I owe that decision to two crazy boys, 15 and 16 years old. Brass Knuckle Emnon and Crooked Jaw Kane. The spitting image of their mother, a 35-year-old widow with a mouth so bitter it could make a sailor cringe. Rumor had it she was the one to give those nicknames to the boys since they were infants, along with their cruelty and their resourceful ways to cause harm. She had become this way since the communist government had executed their father, a teacher who wrote poems of questionable ideology. Since then, she had raised the boys to become her weapons, and they were very, very capable weapons. These were my neighbors. We lived in the third floor of the same standard-issued concrete communist apartment building. Our doors stood across from each other. When we were out in the open, Kane moved like a shadow. You'd turn around and he'd be right there, breathing down your neck. His favorite game was to press a bird between the brick wall and his jaw until he heard its bones crack. He then would stick its bloody feathers under my door like love letters. He wrote me so many love letters, made sure I found them everywhere. Ribbons he had snatched from my hair were found inside my bicycle tires, which he had so lovingly slashed. One time, I don't know how he managed to climb up the rain gutter all the way to my third floor window ledge. My one and only dress was hanging in the clothesline, and he snatched it so hard the shoulders ripped. He threw it down and stood on the ledge, laughing, watching it slowly land in the dusty courtyard like a torn parachute. When I asked him why he would do such a thing, he answered, I just like to imagine your body going down with it. Since the loss of his father when he was a toddler, he only knew how to love things when they were dead. For him, to love meant to hurt. Now his brother Amnon was a mute mountain of mean, with hands that seemed to be twice the size of his body. I feared his hands more than anything. There were these huge brass knuckle snares where I got caught again and again in the no man's land between our doors. One time, he pressed a 9mm gun in the hall of my neck. I had better sense than to fight him. So I stood still, biting halfway through my bottom lip, my eyes fixed on a curious crack in the wall, growing each time Cain banged his head on it on the other side. Amnon was messing with me just to spite his own brother. And somehow, it made me feel less alone to know he was torturing us both. The day war broke out, and all the men and boys in the neighborhood rushed to kidnap rifles and guns, breaking into military depots, prisons, or police stations. Brass Knuckle Emnon and Crooked Jaw Kane came riding through the neighborhood on a stolen army tank, high on bloodthirst and sniff glue, with AK-47s hanging on their necks. They played marksman's games with my window for hours, which turned into days. It became a habit for me to sleep on the floor away from potential stray bullets. In my mother's house, there is still to this day a shoebox of empty shells somewhere, relics collected every morning from our balcony during that terrible month. Through the war days, I survived those boys by the grace of God, with a King James Bible and an old typewriter. 
I wrote poems about love, forgiveness, anything and everything too much alive to die at their hands. The day I left for America, Kane shot every single flower pot still remaining on any window ledge in the neighborhood, howling like a betrayed wolf. I did not turn around to look at him or his mean brother whistling and cheering him on. I wished them both dead. Then ten years later, when word of their simultaneous deaths reached me in a stifling hot southern afternoon in Georgia, my seven-month unborn son flipped inside my womb at the shock that overtook my body. They had died together in a car engulfed by flames during a drug bust. Their memory made me weep ferociously, tears of anger, sadness, and relief. I thought of them, but not as the two hard men who had died in that car, or the two teenage boys who had so ruthlessly bullied me throughout high school, but when they had been two naked infants on a cold tile floor, begging with lament for the breasts of their widowed mother. She was so angry at her loss, she could not look beyond her husband's death. She decided to be in mourning for the rest of her life, and she concealed her milk and love from her sons beneath a heavy black dress she wore every season. I could not understand why she chose to do this, murder them slowly with her venom to avenge her loneliness. How her choice set them on a path that brought so much pain and grief to many. I realize, in their own strange way, they had tried their best to show love for me, the only way their mother had taught them how. I touched my pregnant belly and I vowed, no son of mine will grow unloved. No son of mine will ever raise his hand to hurt. For as a man has destroyed his enemy, so has thou lost the love of thy neighbor. Gypsy Yo is the author of three poetry collections in her native tongue and four audio CD collections in English, including Kitchen Sink Drama and Firstborn Daughters. That piece was produced by Jamie DeWolf with a sound design by Pat Masidi Miller. Now, if you're like me, you're probably taking this 2012 Mayan apocalypse prediction pretty seriously. And others, they think it's just crazy. Now, Quentin Boyer, he's kind of just hedging his bet. But he's doing so in a way that listeners with small children might not appreciate. Fair warning. Quentin Boyer is in public relations. The film company he works for produces reality-based content. The idea is that the the action is sort of mise-en-scene, if I can use a film term. Or, put simply, what we do is point cameras at people who are having Yes, Quentin does PR for, well, an adult entertainment company. So, what exactly does that entail? I do a lot of different things, uh, including now uh, working on an, uh, a bunker to shield us from the apocalypse. Wait, did we just hear that right? And on public radio, no less? How did this happen? How did the bunker come to be? Well, it all stemmed from a conversation I had with some coworkers back in 2008. This was right around the time that the U.S. economy and global economy was really starting to go downhill. And we started to talk about the Mayan calendar and the fact that 2012 was rolling around and that there's a certain segment of the global population that believes the, the world is going to end in December of this year. December 21st, to be exact. And though Quentin wasn't sure he believed in the Mayan prophecy, he was familiar with the concept of the self-help ideology, The Secret. The Secret says that if you believe hard enough in what you want, you can determine your own future. This scared Quentin and his colleagues. They thought, if enough people believed... Just believe strongly enough that the world's going to end and begin to act accordingly. Could they, in essence, bring around an apocalypse of their own making? 
as we talked about this idea, we were mostly laughing, but occasionally sort of going, huh, it's a little bit uh, nerve-wracking. Maybe building a bunker, as crazy as it seems, wouldn't be the worst idea we've ever had. And then eventually, uh, being the sort of tricky, publicity-minded guy that I am, I said, you know, building this thing with part of the purpose being that we're going to continue to produce porn while we're underground avoiding whatever is going on really could be a story in and of itself. So Quentin found a decommissioned missile silo and started to modify it into a luxury apocalypse bunker. The plan was that they'd move into the bunker, and on the 21st, the projected end of the world, they would party. The drinks will be free. Dancers, yeah, that, that's a high probability there. Well, we're hoping to have lots of sin going on in the bunker, obviously. The basic idea is to party like it's the end of the world. If you knew you were going to die at the end of the day, what would you do between now and then? So with fever dreams of Matrix-style apocalyptic dance parties, Quentin got to work. But building an apocalypse bunker proved more difficult than he thought. Some of our plans have become uh, casualties of practical reality, shall we say. We're not going to be able to accommodate as many people as I, I would like to have. You start getting into the reality of it with uh, working with engineers and contractors, and they point out things like, you know, you all have to be able to breathe. Eventually, supplies and the longevity of your supplies become an issue. And, you know, I, I keep referring to it as a luxury bunker, but the, reasonably speaking, there's only so long you can expect to live in luxury when the rest of the world is gone. Being alive at all is a luxury at that point, as I define it. What started out as an opulent harem started becoming more and more Spartan. Quentin really wanted this bunker to actually be safe. What if the world really did end? Just what if? I believe in the possibility, and I think it's a very slim one, but, you know, the world is a strange place. But the safer he tried to make the bunker, the crazier everyone else started to think he was. Three quarters of the company thinks I'm certifiably insane at this point. As far as the rest of my family goes, they will be there on December 22nd to welcome me coming out of the bunker by pointing at me and laughing and saying, I told you so. My wife is pretty skeptical of this whole idea, but she's gonna come with me. At least that's, that's my assumption. Four years and more than a million dollars later, Quentin's boss is frustrated at the cost and time consumed by this bunker. Now, it's much more than just a publicity stunt. Ring and thunder and lightning crumbling, buildings falling, hurricanes are shattering. I was going to go through a list of apocalyptic scenarios, and maybe you can tell me if your bunker is prepared to withstand each of them. Sure. Okay. Nuclear war. We feel very good about our preparedness. It is definitely structured to withstand radiation. Zombies. We are very well armed in the event of zombies coming. This is, after all, Arizona. We're training for the specific kind of ways you disable a zombie. You have to aim for the head. Super volcano. We do have excellent filtration and a very robust uh, HVAC system. Aliens. We're anticipating that aliens that invade will be able to be killed with earthly weapons. That's our operating assumption because because it has to be. And of course, there's the scenario that looks most bleak for Quentin's company, considering the nature of their work, the rapture. The rapture is a, is a very tricky one. Uh, I've had a number of emails from people, you know, they say God is everywhere, God will find you, God will judge you, and that, you know, if need be, we'll, we'll have uh, conversion kits there in the bunker that if it really becomes obvious we have no choice, we can all recant and accept our savior. Colin plans to move in in early December. Preparations such as they are just to get to the bunker with my wife and uh, our pets. Everyone else will come before the night of the party, which is still on. As for the plans to record and sell the antics of the last party on Earth, Quentin has since decided against it. No, we're not going to film the party for the simple reason that, I, you know, if things do turn south, I, I'm not sure I want to have footage of, of that kind of panic. The worst possibility is that there's nothing to open up those blast doors to, or that uh, we never get to open them. I'm rooting for humanity to uh, continue to exist. Uh, <laughs> to, to do otherwise seems kind of monstrous to me. Which it is, but I feel like deep down, our culture's current obsession with the apocalypse is tinged with a sort of longing to not have to worry about Twitter drama or the mortgage 
or conditioning for two minutes before rinsing. To be able to let all that go and be forced to focus solely on survival. Eating, sleeping, copulating. So I had to ask Quentin. I feel like after all this planning, it might be kind of a disappointment for you if the world does not, in fact, end. Here's how I envision a successful outcome. On the morning of December 22nd, I will go to the top of the bunker, open up the blast doors, and will emerge to singing birds, maybe a curious coyote. I think the feeling will be somewhere between a massive letdown and a bit of regret over a great deal of time and money spent, and on the other, elation and euphoria as we emerge from our hardened hole in the desert to find that the world is still there for us and that we're, we're able to return to life. Big thanks to Quentin for sharing his tale. Now, if you want more information, you can swing by our website, snapjudgment.org. We'll have a link to what's going on. That story was, of course, produced by Stephanie Fu. When we return, we're going to finish building our own bunker and making sure the flesh-eating monsters eat hot lead before getting a bite of snap. When Snap Judgment, the apocalypse episode continues. Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. My name is Glenn Washington, and I am holed up in an undisclosed location awaiting the end of days for our apocalypse episode. And as you know, the apocalypse is about endings. And there are few endings as final and as hurtful as the end of a relationship. This next piece was written and produced by Stephanie Fu. You kept a bug-out bag under your bed. You opened it for me once. Hormel's chili, a can opener, flashlight, knives your father gave you. I told you that I used to dream about the apocalypse every night. There was a flood, a few times zombies. Then an earthquake opened up the ground beneath me. Back then you kept your books in drawers, and you pulled them open and gave me tomes about the end of the world. There began our obsession with fear and something started vibrating inside of me like a string pulled taut, waiting for the shots that ring out around my house to multiply, and for all of us to evolve backwards, snarl, and scavenge the streets like animals. T-minus four months before the end, I asked you, if the apocalypse happens, will you protect me? You said, yes, we'll get in my car and drive up to my parents' house in the hills. Yes, I'll protect you. There are so many other things you said that I would count as lies now, but not that. You chose to spend forever with me. If forever was four months before we starved to death in a nuclear-devastated wasteland, that wasn't so far from the truth. We listened to old funk on the radio the night we went to the shooting range. I got a funny feeling in my stomach when I first saw the glass display case full of pistols, because I remembered what happens when you see a gun in Act 1. It was horrific and lovely to hold an explosion in my hands. 
I thought you would value the fact that all of my bullets went straight through the target's neck. Chili isn't going to save you from the undead. But it was exactly that gun which you cited when you gave me a bag of my things and asked me to return the key to your house. You said you were scared. I said, you always were. I was with someone new last night. He burst in a song a lot. He's taller than you. I asked him about the world's deadline fast approaching, and he laughed. Let the economy collapse, he said. Let the aliens come, and let the volcano erupt, and let cornflakes cost $7 a box. The two of us will climb to the top of a mountain, and I'll kiss you as we watch it burn. And he smiled and pulled me down onto the bed. Nature always kills her darlings. Forests smolder, islands sink, stars collapse. Prideful poets call it tragedy because they like the showmanship of delivering a eulogy. But scientists know that atoms never die. They only rearrange themselves into something new. The earth shook the other day. Our high-rise office building swayed. Downstairs there was a riot and tear gas floated in through our windows. Everyone else fled. I opened up a spreadsheet. I stayed. I waited for the world to go on. That piece was written and produced by Stephanie Fu. And if you dig it, and I know you do, the good news is that Stephanie made a short film to accompany the story. Check it out on our website, snapjudgment.org. I can feel it here. I can feel some of you getting worried. You're thinking, I know. They're not going to pull an apocalypse episode without a story from Jamie the Wolf. Well, not to worry, snappers. Get ready. Because Jamie comes correct with the story of a very special summer camp. Every summer as a kid, I got sent to Christian camp. My mom dropped my brother and I off and waved goodbye, driving back down the mountain. It had only been two days so far, rope swings, learning to tie knots, and memorizing scriptures before I developed a mad crush on Sarah Riley. She was a blonde tomboy, a year older, with a gap in her teeth and dirt on her knees. The first one to jump in the river. She was everything I wanted to be. Loud, smart, Fearless. My face went all kinds of buzzy when I saw her, but I never talked to her once. Just tagged her extra hard when we played flag football. One morning, I caught all the adults in the rec room huddled around a radio. Two of them were crying, and Miss Dishman, our Bible study teacher, was arguing heatedly with camp counselor Rick. She was shaking her head as he kept pointing at the last pages of the Bible. I could hear a voice booming on the radio, quoting revelations, until Miss Dishman caught me looking and shut the door in my face. The next day, the nightly Samora sing-along was canceled. Instead, they gathered all the kids around the campfire and had us pray in silence. Camp counselor Rick stepped forward into the firelight. He was always smiling like he had a secret, but this night, his grin was almost frightening. He told us to prepare ourselves for amazing news. One of the kids interrupted and asked if it was a pizza party. He said no. It was better. It was the best news of all. Jesus was coming. The other counselors nodded solemnly. Miss Dishman was shaking her head off to the side. Camp Counselor Rick said there was a preacher on the radio who predicted the last election and the rise of Gorbachev, and he just got a message from God himself. And the rapture was coming in two days, Saturday at midnight. The kids murmured to each other in confusion. One asked, well, what about Sunday kickball? Camp Counselor Rick pointed to the starry sky and said, Jesus was going to come down on a white horse with a flaming sword in his hand, and we would all float up to heaven like helium balloons. He said that sinners would stay on the earth for the unleashing of Armageddon, the seas turning to blood, famine and locusts, so you better pray for forgiveness for all of your sins right 
now. Some of the kids started to pray immediately, and then I saw Sarah Riley being comforted by Sean Tyler, a strapping nine-year-old athlete who was always picked first to be quarterback. I hated Sean Tyler more than the devil and saw him hug her until the camp counselor separated them. We asked, if we're going to be in heaven, do our moms still need to pick us up? It depends, Rick said, if they're saved or not. If they are, they'll meet you up there. If not, then... Then what? asked Billy. Then you'll need to pray extra hard for them. Miss Dishman stepped forward and said, Prophecies come and go, that only God would decide, and that no man could know the day or the hour. Camp Counselor Rick interrupted her and said that we were the lucky ones to be given this gift and that we had better get right with God. Now I wanted the rapture to come, just not that weekend. I wanted to call my mom immediately to tell her to free my hamster Tigger. I didn't know if hamsters officially had souls or not, but I wanted to make sure he was covered just in case. A bleak depression came over me realizing I'd never be a jet pilot or firefighter or ever even be an adult, and I'd be stuck in heaven in an eight-year-old body for eternity. The next two days were a free-for-all. Some of the kids stopped showering. The fat kid Billy ate all the candy he'd been hiding under his bed, and I made a list of all the burning questions I had when I got to heaven, like if the Loch Ness Monster was real, or if aliens are really angels in weird green disguises, and where did my dad go for all of those years? The next day, Camp Counselor Rick told us this was the last soccer game of our lives, and yelled out, Hallelujah, every time we scored. That afternoon, I prayed for all the kids in my school that were about to go to hell. For my Jewish friend Jeff, who always laughed when I begged him not to believe what his parents told him. I wrote a letter to my dad, telling him everything he missed, and left it on my pillow. And then, I found Sarah Riley. She had combed her hair and was wearing a blue dress. And finally, we were alone. I walked up slowly, my face going flush. She turned... Well, what do you want, Carrot Top? She asked. <clears throat> Since it's the last day on Earth and all, I just want you to know that I really, really like you a lot. And then I ran. I didn't even stay to see her face. I hid in my room and prayed Sarah Riley and I would float up together. And then I made a plan. I begged my brother for a slingshot. I chewed five pieces of gum together into a ball and tested my aim. If Sean Tyler was going to float up too, the least I could do was make sure that they weren't holding hands. All day, we waited for the end. At sunset, Camp Counselor Rick said we were going to wait for Jesus in the field. Everyone closed their eyes and raised their arms. I peeked to see Sarah Riley and Sean Tyler holding hands. I reached back to my slingshot. Camp Counselor Rick led us in song as the clock ticked. Another counselor banged on a drum. 11.58, 11.59, I took aim. Midnight, I fired the hard gun from the slingshot. It went wild and whistled past Sean Tyler's face. He stared at me with fire in his eyes and hissed. Jesus ain't gonna save you now. Miss Dishman walked out towards us and took the slingshot from my hand. All right, kids, she said. It's way past your bedtimes. Get along now. Camp Counselor Rick was about to protest, then closed his mouth. He looked at his hands to make sure he was still there. The rest of the kids walked back in silence. I stood there. Knowing the next day, Sean Tyler was going to terrorize me, Sarah Riley was going to laugh at me, and Jesus was still coming. But no one would ever know when. Keep waiting, Jamie. Keep on waiting now. Now, some people have an idea that the apocalypse is something that just happens. It's something you have no control over. No, 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 a thousand times no. We control our own destiny. And the best way to control things 
is to have a plan. Our next guest, Sarah Haskins. She is ready. Sarah, the microphone is yours. This summer, I've been expecting two things. The first is a baby. And the second is the apocalypse. Now, there is a perfectly plausible explanation for this because part of being pregnant is going crazy. You know, our culture creates an image of the sainted mother with her gentle halo, caressing her baby bump, painting the nursery. My experience of pregnancy is that it is insane. It is a dark time of paranoia, insomnia, nausea, and worst of all, sobriety. (laughs) Oh, you can have a glass of wine, people say. I don't want a glass of wine. (laughs) And some strange door within myself has been ripped open and the world is different. For example, I I saw a Today Show segment about a man who was reunited with a gorilla that he had raised in captivity and then he went to the jungle and the gorilla recognized him and they embraced. I wept. He knows him. I cry at everything. The finale of Lost, a show I did not watch. So this was probably not the right time in my life to read a book about a U.S. Army experiment that goes awry, creating a race of vampires that destroy civilization. I followed that up with a book about a zombie plague that destroys civilization. I kind of thought these books would take my mind off things. Instead, they put my mind on a thing. That thing being the end. I am going to prepare because in crazy pregnancy town, preparation equals success. So I bought a book, a real nonfiction book about how to handle a crisis. On the back, it has a helpful list. What could be next? Some examples. Biochemical terrorism, nuclear attack or accidents, crop failures and famine. He doesn't even get to vampire slash zombie plagues. The book comes highly recommended. There are a lot of quotes on the back. Excellent overall book, says Dr. John Sweeney. (laughs) One of the best guides to personal preparedness. Bruce Tippery of the Remnant Review. That's the magazine for those of you who are left. And my favorite, everyone needs this book. Internet Site Review. thing the crisis preparation handbook or should I say the CPH suggests is taking stock the most important thing the ingredient for survival that you have is yourself so take stock of your skills here's some of the things that the CPH recommends growing a garden skinning a rabbit cheese making blacksmithing welding foraging for edible plants bartering candle making goat breeding here are some of the skills I possess improv comedy Five-paragraph essay writing. Leadership. The book recommends that if you lack these basic skills, you take a class at a local community college. So I went to my husband and told him, I'm torn between solar panel installation and electronic circuitry 110. So when the apocalypse comes, I can scavenge landfills and cobble together needed items from the wreck of our civilization. The mood seems contagious. My mom went to a conference about water shortages. My mom is a sixth grade teacher. But even she knows that the first thing you do when you get your source of water is kill the other people who want it. (laughs) She sent me an email. Maybe I should buy your grandma's cottage in Michigan because when you run out of water in California, you can move here and we'll build a wall around the house with machine guns on it. (laughs) It made me realize I don't think I'm ready for that world. It's all I can really do now to prepare for one more person. To try and teach them to be nice and share and not watch crap TV to be independent, to teach them that nothing you buy will ever make you as happy as your friends. And so when the zombies come, I'm gonna have to be the one to stab them in the head. And I'll say you run, and you find someone stronger, and you tell them your mother raised you right. You can play the piano, write a five paragraph essay, and breed goats. Because that is the class I will take. Thank you. It was a zombie jamboree Took place on an island cemetery Yes, it was a zombie jamboree Took place on an island cemetery Zombies from 
Sarah Haskins is a writer-performer living in Los Angeles. That piece was recorded for the Paper Machete, a weekly live magazine. And if you happen to be in Chicago, go check out the show every Saturday at the Horseshoe Tavern. That piece was produced by Lindsay Lee Keel. It is the end of days, the end of time, and the end of the show. But Snap lives on. Get in the conversation. Join Snap Nation. Podcasts, pictures, movies, all that. Snapjudgment.org. Facebook, Snap Judgment. Twitter handle, SnapJudgment.org. And you know we're on iTunes. Snap Judgment was produced by the opposite of flesh-eating zombies bent on the destruction of mankind. Screaming in the fallout shelter right now. Say hello to the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. I am the god of hellfire, and I bring you fire. The world without music is no world at all. So we've saved Pat Masidi Miller. Holy water sizzles on Stephanie Fu's skin. Anna Sussman drinks Tang. Jamie DeWolf drinks. Lindsay Lee Keel can hotwire a car. And Renzo Gordo knows their language. Julia DeWitt can't run fast enough. And Willa Bina hopes they come inside. Did you ever store several months of provisions in a secret bunker, come back later to escape the calamity, only to find some chubby kid sitting in your hideout with a bunch of your MRE packages littered around him? Don't throw them to the zombies. It's only the Corporation for Public Broadcasting looking for a little snack. Much love to the CPB. PRX, the public radio exchange, putting public media on the public's plate, even if the public refuses to eat it. You you eat it right now, public. You eat it. PRX.org. This is not the news. This is not the news. In fact, after Skynet destroys the Earth's defenses, you could infiltrate the authority, sneak down the dark passage. You could discover the secret ingredient of the protein shake force-fed to all humanoid workers each and every meal. It's people. It's made of people. You could make this discovery, yes, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.